This week's TribCast is sponsored by the University of Texas at Arlington. A Purple Heart University, the University of Texas at Arlington is ranked number one in the nation for veterans and their families. More at uta.edu. And Texas Grain and Feed Association. Stay up to date with the grain and feed industry by following Texas Grain and Feed Association on Facebook at facebook.com slash TGFA1898. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for February 3rd, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week we are joined by politics reporter Patrick Spitek. Hey there. Uh, executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. And Demographics Reporter Alexa Ura. Welcome back, Alexa. Hello. Thank y'all for joining us this week. Um, it's been a slow start to the legislative session in 2021. Lawmakers have really barely met so far, and uh, the leadership of the state has been fairly quiet about what they want to accomplish this session, aside from some broad outlines. One thing we're re really looking at was the budgeting process during tough economic times, but even that has turned out to be kind of not as bad as we originally expected. But this week we got kind of the clearest signals from Governor Greg Abbott about his priorities during his State of the State speech. Um, I'm generally not a fan of state of the fill in the blank speeches. Uh, a lot of kind of uh, tend to be a lot of political theater, but the State of the State has some meaning kind of attached to it because it's the time when the governor lays out his emergency items. Uh, those items, kind of the misnamed items, which are the issues that don't necessarily have to be emergencies, but they're designations of priorities by the governor. And it gives the legislature freedom to take up issues in those items in the first 60 days of the session, a time when bills usually aren't allowed to be passed. Um, this year, Abbott's speech, he put out five, expanding broadband access, punishing local governments that defund police, changing the bail system, ensuring election integrity, and providing civil liability protections for businesses that were open during the pandemic. Patrick, you were covering this for us on Monday night. Uh, what stood out to you about the speech? Well, I would say 90% of the issues that he, 90 to 95% of the issues that he mentioned in this speech, whether they were emergency items or not, were issues that he had kind of telegraphed that were of interest of him, uh, of interest to him heading into this session. I think what was uh, most interesting to me is what he chose to elevate uh, to the emergency item status, which obviously allows lawmakers to get to work on them more quickly than they would on uh, other legislation that's not deemed an emergency item. Um, just a single one of those emergency items out. I would say probably the one that stood out to me the most was uh, elections. Um, obviously, we know that within the Republican Party, this has been uh, of intense uh, an intense focus, especially since the presidential election. But it's not really an issue that Abbott himself has taken up since the presidential election. He hasn't really talked himself that much about it. Um, you know, he was among the Republicans, obviously, who did not um, immediately recognize Joe Biden as the next president after the networks called it for him. Um, and he was supportive of that Ken Paxton lawsuit to challenge the election results in four battleground states. But otherwise, Abbott has kind of kept his distance, I would say, or just been, if not actively kept his distance, just been silent on a lot of the Republican Party's uh, election discussion since the November uh, election. 
And so again, even though it was a big Republican issue in recent months, it's not something I've heard a lot from Abbott on. And in that state of the state speech, uh, it was probably the emergency item where he was the most vague on what exactly he wanted under that umbrella. We since interviewed him and in other media appearances since the speech, he since elaborated and pointed to a specific bill from last session that he says would be a good starting point. Uh, but he nonetheless was, was very open-ended about that emergency item on uh, Monday night. Yeah, I think that vagueness is key, right? Because one thing we've talked about on this podcast and, and Patrick, you've written about is this idea of, you know, it was a successful election for Republicans in Texas. And, and in 2019, there was a lot of talk about kind of putting aside that those big kind of partisan hot button issues, you know, knowing that, for instance, the the state house might be uh, at stake in, in 2020. That obviously didn't work out the way Democrats have planned. And there's been a question of kind of our Republicans going to be the, the most conservatives in the party going to be kind of clamoring for the things that they want to see happen a little bit more this session. Um, I think you could definitely make the argument that this election integrity item was, you know, uh, uh, kind of an answer to that. But the question, of course, depends on what exactly he wants to do there. And once we get into more of the specifics, you know, how, how far is he willing to go? I, I mean, Ross, do you agree with that, that, that we saw kind of a nod to the right in his, his speech on Monday? Yeah, I think it was more of a return to the right. You know, his, if you look at his state of the state speeches in 2015 and 2017, you know, the, the, the conservative end of the pool is where Abbott lives. That's where this guy swims. And the 2019 state of the state speech followed an election that the Republicans had a really hard time in. And they were a lot more moderate. And they came out and said, this is going to be a bread and butter session. We're going to do school finance and property taxes and some other issues like that. You know, this is a more of a return to norm, uh, at least from my standpoint. But, you know, Abbott's a very conservative guy, and he's reestablishing himself as a conservative guy in this session. The one item pointed out in one of, I think, maybe Patrick's story, but the one item that really has really broad support is broadband internet, um, which is, you know, nobody could, I guess, find a partisan hook on that one. Um, but everything else seems to be um, feeding the Republican base in some way or another. I will say to the extent, thinking back to 2019, you know, it was sort of cataloged as this like bread and butter session. But I remember before that state of the state that year, I had heard from Democrats who were thinking that something along the lines of, quote, election integrity would actually be part of it. But then, of course, you'll remember that that's also when the Secretary of State's office came under fire for its botch review of the voter rolls that, you know, really in the end did more harm than good to Republicans' argument about, you know, supposed rampant voter fraud and issues with our voter rolls and whatnot. And so I think there was also, at least from Democrats, there was some anticipation that this actually could have been part of 2019, but it was just, you know, you, you how could you kind of really push for that after the way that went over with the Secretary of State's office? And it was actually around the time when he would have been giving his state of the state. Right. And Patrick, you mentioned when you spoke to Abbott yesterday, he, he brought up SB9, which was the kind of election security integrity, as they defined it, Bill, um, from the Senate last session that passed the Senate and did not make it through the House. Um, Abbott kind of mentioning that as a, a some of the things in that bill might be what if, might have been what he was talking about 
um, in the state of the state speech. Alexa, you covered that bill. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown of what was in it and, and what people were saying about it at the time? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it was a pretty massive bill. And so I, I will not even be able to get into everything that was in it. But essentially, it, it started as kind of the main vehicle through which uh, Republicans wanted to require counties to have voting machines with paper trails, uh, which is really where most counties have been moving anyway, like all of the big five counties that have recently purchased uh, new voting machines have already complied with kind of that you know, not, uh, not a requirement because it didn't pass, but kind of that idea, but kind of baked into this legislation were a ton of different measures related to elections. A lot of them were really about increasing penalties for uh, vote, illegal voting and um, election related crimes. Like how can you assist a voter and uh, unlawful assistance of a voter and, and kind of things along those lines. And then there were a couple of things that really concerned uh, voting rights advocates. There were things like, if you're assisting a voter, you can't make any sort of gestures or hand signs. And they, I think made that a crime or elevated a crime. And we heard from advocates for people with disabilities who said, you know, like, actually, I need that. That is how I get assistance to be able to vote. I need my my assister to actually make sure that I'm filling out my ballot correctly by doing that. And so it was a pretty controversial bill that eventually died in the House. Um, I think it never made it out of the calendars committee was sort of its last stop. Um, and really, in the end, it didn't even have the language about these voting machines. So it was kind of a weird one. It was pretty massive and kind of hard to wrap your arms around. And I think it'll be interesting to see what the new version of it comes back with, how much of that original bill actually exists in this new bill. The reality is that Republicans have basically done everything they can um, to, you know, the, the restrictions that exist on voting. There's not a lot, there's not a lot of room for them. If you look at the things that are being proposed in other states, we already do a lot of that. And so I think you'll end up seeing a lot of kind of increased penalties and a focus on that, voter roll maintenance and a focus on that, and basically trying to limit a lot of the things Harris County did in 2020 to make it, to make voting more accessible. Yeah, the thing you mentioned at the end, the, the Harris County, I, um, I mean, that, that seems to me like a, an area that uh, you might see kind of movement on just because of how united everyone in the state was not everyone in the state all the the republican leadership of the state you know ken paxton uh, greg abbott and other people you know as as harris county was working to expand voter access by you know doing the drive-through voting the um sending mail-in ballots out to everyone um in the county and all those kinds of things even those who hadn't asked for it um you know, things that are applications, not applications. Sorry. Thank you. Um, things that are not um, that were not, you know, restricted specifically in the law, but that, that the state ended up interested going and in, going to court with. Um, you know, I would not be surprised if we saw that as an area that that Abbott kind of tried to play. Yeah, I think I think if you're a Republican and you know that this is an issue that's important to your base, there are still things you can try to do uh, this session to kind of appease that base. And I think, you know, obviously Harris, with Harris County going under Democratic control, it's become all of its kind of voting initiatives have really become targets for local Republicans. And you're seeing that fight kind of reach the statewide state and the legislative stage this time around. Paul Betancourt, uh, a senator, has already filed legislation to say 
counties can't send out voting by mail applications unless they're requested, you know, very specifically targeting what Harris County was trying to do. And, and I don't think it'll be the only piece of legislation we'll see related to that. Ross, I want you to kind of test my theory of the session so far. I want to I want to run it by your expertise on the legislative session. I'm I'm bored. I'm snoozing. What do you what's your theory? <laughs> right. Well, you know, I look back at uh, 2017, 2019, 2017 in the run up to the session, you had uh, Dan Patrick, you know, even before the session started in, in December, kind of putting out his kind of top 10, top 20 bills that he wanted to see pass this session. 2019, he did not do that. But what you did see was, you know, some real strong unity from Dennis Bonin, who was the new speaker at the time, Patrick and Abbott on, you know, we're going to take up school finance and we're going to take up property tax uh, issues. And, you know, particularly in property tax, they had already kind of come up with you know what they wanted to do like with their what they called the rollback rate of you know if, if local government's property taxes get above a certain threshold then and and that number ended up changing through the session but we had a pretty good sense of what they wanted on those bills when i look at this session i see abbott he gives his state of the state and he put out his priorities and i think by it's clear that he has been the most kind of going out there and saying what he wants to accomplish this session, even if, as we've noted, a lot of those things have lacked some real specificity, at least until this point. And Phelan, and especially Patrick, I feel like we've heard next to nothing about priorities. Um, I mean, does that stand out to you? Does, does it seem to you like you know, we're, we're now at this point where we have emergency items, we're, we're, we're several weeks into the session, but there, the momentum of the session to me just really feels, feels like it is not picked up yet. Yeah, they don't come into this with a political agenda, um, either described by the ways that they ran for office or by the ways that they're going to run for office in the way that happens in some other years. You know, 2017, I think Alexa spent, you know, six or seven months on one bill, the bathroom bill, uh, that was clearly a political bill and a political sort of cultural argument uh, that's the kind of thing that politicians describe themselves. This time, the, the situation is described for them. And, and Texas is facing kind of the same thing that you'd be facing in any other legislature or in Congress. There's a pandemic. There's a recession associated with that pandemic. There is a re-sparked racial justice and police behavior and brutality uh, debate to be had. And there is a big kerfluffle or a number of kerfluffles or whatever you want to call the hairball that is election and voting law right now. And I think they walk into that and they don't have to describe it as an agenda. It's kind of forced upon them. Um, the Lieutenant governor has been astonishingly quiet. You're right. He's always got an agenda and sort of has been an activist politically in terms of I ran for this office. This is what I want to do with it. Uh, Dave Phelan just found the driver, the steering wheel. So I'm, I'm less surprised that the, House comes in without an agenda. The House always, to some extent, comes in without an agenda. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things the governor was probably trying to do with his state of the state speech was to walk into that formless void with an agenda and see if anybody would follow him. Yeah, even, even the speaker and lieutenant governor's reactions to Abbott's state of the state were pretty muted. You had, as far as I know, one tweet that night from Dave Phelan in which he shouted out, three of the least controversial issues that Abbott mentioned. He said, thanks to Governor Abbott for prioritizing public ed, 
telehealth expansion and rural broadband access. Uh, so, you know, picking to praise him on three of the issues that probably enjoyed the, the most broad support and what he mentioned. And then Dan Patrick, as far as I know, did not react to Abbott's State of the State speech. There was no uh, statement in the inbox, no tweets that I saw. I checked the past two State of the State addresses that Abbott gave. Dan Patrick was quick to issue a statement afterward. They were earlier in the day and, you know, they weren't this primetime address that Abbott had due to COVID. But nonetheless, it was still a pretty, I think, muted reaction from the other two of the big three. And that's not to suggest necessarily that there's a, a disunity right now. I think it's just maybe more of a um, willingness to kind of sit back and let Abbott, uh, you know, be in the driver's seat on the agenda so far at the beginning of this session. Sure. Patrick, while um, Governor Abbott was speaking, you and you were covering the speech, you were also putting the finishing touches on another story that you were working on, um, a story about um, a some some issues in the Texas GOP, or I guess an issue in the Texas GOP, a, a, a staffer who had been recently hired in December who had some videos on his various social media accounts, um, you know, not inside the Capitol during the January 6th riot, but about as close as you could get without being inside it, kind of right at a door where people were kind of packing around it. Um, in that video, um, one person, I don't know if you caught this, was holding a pitchfork, like an, a literal pitchfork in the air, which, um, you know, there was a lot alarming going on that day at the Capitol, but that, uh, that individual thing, uh, really struck me in that video. And then there was also a video of him at the, um, Comet Pizza restaurant in, in Washington, DC, um, which is known to people who have followed this as the site of the pizza gate conspiracy theory in which this paid GSP staffer was uh, kind of accosting and, and yelling at uh, people in the, um, in the restaurant about that conspiracy theory. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, I mean, you, you found these emails, you sent them to the Texas GOP. Can you tell us kind of what their reaction was and, and what happened after that? Yeah, I had been tipped off um, about these uh, videos that this person uh, field field organizer by the name of Kevin Witt had, posted on their social media accounts, as well as some posts that they had made um, express, expressing solidarity or praise for the Proud Boys, which is the, the far-right nationalist group whose some of their members have been charged in the, in the Capitol riot. And I, I brought it to the state party and on Monday and just said, hey, you know, do you have any response to this social media activity of this person who appears to be on your payroll? And less than two hours after I emailed uh, the state party, they got back to me with a statement saying they had they had fired this staffer um, and they said that due to, you know, quote, some troubling video that had come to light, they were terminating the relationship with this person. Um, so they were at least once the media, uh, you know, inquired about it, um, they were pretty quick to act. Uh, but this person, you know, was uh, hired uh, in, on November 30th, um, that video where they're, you know, making a scene at the pizzeria in DC was from mid-December. Um, and obviously the video from the Capitol riot was from January 6th, early last month. Um, and so, you know, while this person wasn't necessarily a high level staffer or, or someone of significant influence within the party, formal party organization, I think there are still a lot of questions about under the, you know, chairmanship of Alan West, whether the party is making the right decisions in terms of who it's hiring and if it's vetting people, especially when it comes to their, their social media activity. Um, and we all already, this is already in the context of this debate we've had over the party slogan under Alan West, we are the storm, which we've, we've covered national media has covered, which uses some language that's 
uh, common with the QAnon conspiracy movement. Alan West has you know, denied any connection, and he did indeed use that slogan um, b- before this kind of uh, all this QAnon thing became a, a national uh, conversation. Uh, but I think questions still persist about whether, you know, how this party is being operated under Alan West and, you know, whether it's elevating some of these uh, voices from the fringe of the party, um, you know, from the fringe of the, the Trump era Republican Party specifically. Ross, do you think this is something that has the attention of the state leaders? I mean, you know, something that continues to come up and it's, you know, I think at this point fully in the rumor category about whether Alan West has any kind of further aspirations beyond Texas GOP chair running for office, primarying Governor Abbott is is one of the things that is often suggested. Um, But I mean, how, how concerned do you think kind of folks are in the party about the direction that that Alan West is taking the the state GOP. You know, I think the first thing they look at is 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 whoever is in charge of the Texas GOP messing up my business. And you know, if if there's always something going on in the parties that the people in office would just rather not know about or talk about, you know, um, it might be a competence issue, it might be somebody, you know, acting up like in this case uh, it might be somebody with a megaphone outside the governor's mansion protesting a governor of his own party. But as long as it's not messing up your business, they kind of stay away from it and let the party do what the party does. In this case, the problem is that the, this keeps coming up. It's like a bad penny right now. And especially after what happened in Washington, this is sort of the Texas um, harmonic to, to what's been going on in Washington. And I think you know they'd rather be talking about the things you know, like Greg Abbott, I think, would rather be talking about the speech that he gave Monday night and his priorities than being asked questions about Alan West. Um, on the other hand, you know, in Patrick's story this morning, and I guess in the interview you did yesterday uh, with the governor, he kind of downplayed this, it sounded like. Right. Yeah. I asked him, given, you know, uh, West's criticism of some of, you know, Abbott's coronavirus response, given what happened with this staffer, and just given all the attention in some, in many cases, unwanted that, you know, West has brought to the party, whether Abbott has confidence in him to continue to lead the party heading into both this session and the 2022 election cycle. And um, Abbott, in response to that initially, uh, you know, was evasive, but I pressed him and he eventually said, you know, yeah, I have leadership. I've always had leadership in the party, whether it's the current or former leadership. So still kind of backing his way into saying that he has confidence in West. Uh, He was not, did not seem particularly comfortable with that question. Um, but his, his approach so far has really been to try to ignore West and just keep his distance from the state party. Um, you know, I noted it's not in the story, but in, in my lead up to that, that question with Abbott, I noted to him, you still haven't you still have not congratulated West on winning the chairmanship. <laughs> if, you, if you recall, um, you know, after West won the chairmanship late last summer, um, you know, there were a number of statewide officials that at least put out tweets saying congratulations, Alan West. Abbott was silent. Uh, and when I brought that up as a part of the premise of my question yesterday, uh, he didn't dispute that. So I think, you know, he is, he is again, trying to keep his distance from the party under West and, and has tried to deal with West by ignoring him so far. We'll see if that's politically sustainable. It would be a little strange to congratulate him now though. You know, <laughs> <laughs> break, break some news in my, in my story seven or right. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's take a break and we'll talk about redistricting after we hear from our sponsors. This week's Tribcast is sponsored by Water Grows Initiative. From the city to the suburbs and onto the countryside, 
water plays an important role. Water grows our economy, our farms, and our children's future. Let's make it last. Learn more at watergrows.org or follow at watergrows on social media. And raise your hand, Texas. A strong Texas recovery requires strong public schools. Stand with our public schools in our communities and at the Capitol. Join us at raiseyourhandtexas.org slash strong recovery. Okay, so one issue that did not come up in Abbott's state of the state, but was one we were really anticipating for this legislative session was redistricting. And maybe one of the reasons it didn't come up is because it's increasingly looking like we're not going to be able to have it come up during this legislative session. Alexa, you are our redistricting expert. Tell us a little bit about what we're hearing from the Census Bureau and what that means for 2021 redistricting in Texas. What it means is that I should take a vacation until August or September. Uh, you know, essentially, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Census Bureau is running really, really behind schedule. Normally by now, we'd be, you know, maybe a couple weeks away from getting the redistricting data that we actually need to start redrawing some of these maps. Instead, the Bureau has said that we're not going to get that before July 30th, or it's not likely that we'll get that before July 30th. I will point out that that doesn't mean we're going to get it August 1st. Um, you know, it's still pretty unclear. This timeline is pretty unclear. And obviously that creates then kind of a rolling set of questions about what redistricting will look like in Texas this year. Congressional redistricting has happened in a special session before. I don't think there are a lot of questions about that, but we are increasingly hearing that there are some questions among Democrats about can the redistricting of state Senate and state house seats start in a special session. And I think that's going to be one of the big issues that we'll probably hear about sooner rather than later. Like, I don't think that's going to be something that comes up in August or whenever the governor calls a special session to do this. Um, so, you know, it's a weird thing. And, and it's one of those things that affects everything else, right? Like if you don't draw any of the maps until August or September, or if you wait until October, then that pushes all the, the timeline for litigation. Obviously we have filing deadlines for the primary in 2022, and these maps need to be finalized for that. You'll remember, you know, a decade ago, we did have a delayed primary in part because of redistricting litigation and how long it was taking. Um, and, you know, there are also sort of things like if you're Abbott and you want to close the window for litigation and the court's involvement in redrawing your map, because these maps will end up in litigation, do you wait until that window is very, very tight and there's not a lot of scrutiny that can be placed on the maps before these elections have to move forward? So. You know, it's weird. We thought this session was going to be a lot about this, and instead we're just waiting and waiting. Yeah. You mentioned the, the House and Senate districts, and can you do it in a special session? Can you, can you explain what you mean by that and what the question is there? Yeah. So the Texas Constitution says that the legislature has to redraw districts in the first regular session after the census is published. Normally, that's not a problem, right? We get the data in February or March. Lawmakers are here until May. There's some time to do these maps. If they don't, if they fail to do that, and the, the keyword here is fail, then you have the Legislative Redistricting Board come in and take over the maps. And that's 
you know, a panel of elected officials that includes the Lieutenant Governor, the Attorney General, the Speaker of the House. And so I think that because of that language in the Constitution that says this has to happen in the first regular session, there are some, I think, growing arguments that that language means it has to happen and it can't happen outside of a regular session. You know, I think then you get into questions about do you then have to sue in federal court to have a to have the courts redraw the maps? Can you have a, the elections in 2022 with the same maps you had before the census happened? I mean, it's like we're very much in uncharted territory here um, because this sort of delay from the census is unprecedented. Um, and obviously it was driven by the pandemic and the sort of delay we haven't had to even consider before. And of course, this is all happening uh, against the backdrop of the, um, you know, the state becoming more competitive for Democrats in recent elections, right? And, you know, maybe uh, everyone got a little ahead of their skis in 2020 thinking that, that Democrats could uh, retake the House, but nonetheless, it was much more competitive than it was a few years ago. And that's really got to factor in to the consideration as, as people think about redrawing the lines about, you know, what can Republicans do to preserve their majorities, um, particularly in the Texas House, but then also, you know, we, we, we should talk about congressional seats as well. But I mean, you know, I think you talk about kind of the legal theories here, it's fair to say that Democrats would like to try to find a way to have the courts redraw these boundaries as opposed to the Republicans who control kind of not just the House and the Senate, but also every seat on that legislative redistricting board, right? Yeah, I think if you're a Democrat, you are looking at a sea of bad scenarios and trying to decide which one is the best one for you. And this is going to end up in court regardless. It's just a question of when and which court. Uh, and you'll probably, and you usually do see some changes because the court will often identify some pretty clear issues in the maps when it comes to discrimination against voters. Last time it was Hispanic voters in particular. And so, you know, I, I think this also depends on how aggressive Republicans are, right? Do they, do they look at some of this growth? Do they look at what happened last time and kind of become or maybe pull back their eagerness to kind of build their majority uh, or do they go kind of full, full out the way they did last time uh, and I think that that still remains unclear and obviously Republicans are going to be very careful about their strategy but that will play a big part into this as well how much leeway do Republicans give the courts to redraw some of these districts and and how far do they go in redrawing the lines is there any situation where, you know, we mentioned the legislative redistricting or the, what is it called? The state, Texas, legislative the redistricting, redistricting board. board. Yeah. <laughs> and this is made up of the uh, House Speaker, the Lieutenant Governor, the Governor, the, all right, help me out here. The, no, no I'd rather, I'd rather you. Land Commissioner, <laughs> Land Commissioner, right? Yeah, the Governor is not on it, actually. The Governor is uh, not on it. Speaker, no, Lieutenant it, Governor, Attorney General, Controller, and Land Office. Okay, thank you, thank you. There I you mean, go. is there any situation <laughs> where the, you know, particularly the, the leaders of those two chambers just make a decision, like, maybe it's less messy if we just kick some of these things to this board and we write it ourselves without, you know, all 150 House members and 31 Senate members bothering me about, you know, this and this and trying to make their own imprint on this? 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think if you, you know, redistricting is about political survival, right? Like, and and it's basically months of, and with a delay, you know, is are you setting yourself up for months or weeks of people coming and knocking at your door with their like hand-drawn map about what they would like to see and who they don't want in their district? But I think the the other point that is, that has become more and more interesting to me is that if you defer to a legislative redistricting board, then you basically shut out these committee hearings, you shut out these debates on the floor, and you basically keep the Democrats from building a legal record against Republicans. And given the the lack of power Democrats have, the legal record for them is a key component of this as they try to redraw some of these maps in court instead. And if you do the LRB, you basically take that option from them. And I think, you know, I'm not going to guess what the AG or the former AG, now the governor might be thinking about any of that, but you, you've got to think that it maybe is part of the equation at some point, or at least it's a thought that crosses their mind at some point. Alexa, you touched on something that I am kind of obsessing over and have been for a while, which is the question of how aggressive do Republicans want to get in this process, right? And, and you've written about this in the past, um, how Dallas County can kind of serve as an example, right? Where they drew up a lot of these districts to maximize the number of Republicans in Dallas County, but demographic changes, changes in population and things like that over the decade it turned out they they did it too aggressively, and a lot of those seats flipped to Democrats. What all but two flipped to Democrats by the time we got to 2020, and you know this I think is the magical question, Ross. You've you've been around for for redistrictings in the past. I mean, I'm curious what you think about lawmakers' ability to not kind of see the prize of adding to their majority or. Or, or, or giving you know more Republicans more seats, and think about the long game about like kind of preserving their uh, their majorities for as, as long as possible and as safely as possible as we go you know all the way to twenty thirty. You know there was a there was a thing yesterday that we did online on Facebook with Michael Lee from the Brennan Center, and he had this phrase called "dummy mandering" um, that I really liked, and it's you know people look at the next election and often don't look down the line. And, you know, this happens over and over again. It's why uh, John Culberson is no longer in the Texas congressional delegation because they sliced the bologna too thin in that district. And, you know, it's what happened to Dallas County. If you draw a map to maximize your chances of holding a majority for a decade, you draw a different map than if you draw a map in the interests of the members who are right here and want to get elected in the next November. Um, the latter usually holds the day because you got to get the votes to pass a map and you do that by satisfying the members. The people with the long-term interest at heart always have the harder argument to make. Right. And, and the idea here about kind of vulnerable districts or slicing it too thin, right, is do you draw a bunch of you know, this is extremely hypothetical and not a very like specific number, but do you draw a bunch of kind of 55, 45 GOP districts that are more vulnerable to shifts in population and things like that, that, you know, could become more democratic and more competitive later down the line? Or do you focus on drawing, you know, 66, 33 districts for Republicans 
and uh, but give them, you know, have fewer of them and give Democrats some of their some more of their kind of stronger seats as well. I mean, it's going to be a really interesting question. Yeah, and I, and, and I think the thing to consider is that these issues are happening because the state's growth is largely among people of color, right? Like the in the last session, in the last redistricting cycle, it was about 90% of the state's growth in the last 10 years had been because of people of color. The majority of that was because of Hispanic growth. We're not quite there yet in terms of the number. I think we're at like 82% since 2010 at this point. But that's what makes this hard, right? In a lot of these communities. And Republicans last time, instead of drawing seats that were not only Democratic, but majority Hispanic or majority Hispanic and Black, they opted to do these, you know, a very extreme Republican map. And so you, you know, it is about politics, but it's also about representation, right? And and this time, I do wonder if this time more than last time, those two things will overlap, just given where we are today in terms of the population and in terms of where that growth is and how diverse that growth is. Right. And of course, you know, uh, uh, underlying all of that is the the Voting Rights Act and the fact that you can't discriminate discriminate against people of color when you draw these districts. Um, Obviously, that is an act that has been weakened um, in the past 10 years by the Supreme Court, but but still something and, and something that a lot of these lawsuits and legal challenges that we expect to come after this to be to be grounded in. Yeah, I mean, some of the districts last time, the federal courts found that lawmakers had turned the, flipped the VRA on its head in terms of its protections for voters of color to get the maps that they wanted. And a lot of those original maps are still in the existing ones. All right. Well, it's, we've got a lot of time to be watching that, and it's going to be a very interesting process to keep an eye on. But that's all we're going to talk about for today. Uh, thank you to Alexa, Ross, Patrick, and our producer, Todd. Thank you to our sponsors, the University of Texas at Arlington and Texas Grain and Feed Association, the Water Grows Initiative, and Raise Your Hand, Texas. We will be back next week. Do I have to talk to you? Do I have to talk to you?